Welcome to D4, <laughs> the show where each week we take a deep dive into one or two, sometimes, character builds for Dungeons & Dragons. We theorycraft about them, we number crunch, not so that I can tell you the right way or the best way to play a certain character, but with the hopes of exploring one potential way to build and play a character in the hopes of creating something that is both really fun to play in-game, but also powerful. So if you enjoy creating characters for D&D, almost as much as you enjoy playing the game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on a character that you're thinking about trying to play, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm so glad you're here. I really am. My name's Colby, and I'll be your host. Really quick, if you would be interested in getting a cheat sheet, a little step-by-step -step guide to help you recreate this character yourself without having to go back and rewatch the video or take notes, then I would appreciate it if you would consider joining the channel as a member. There's a little button down there that says join. For $2 a month, my channel members get access to the library of write-ups that I create for every single one of these builds so that you can have access to that. And it's also just a nice way to support the channel, help me create more and better content. So huge shout out and thank you to my channel members. You guys are awesome and everybody else, you guys, are also awesome. Thanks for just watching and liking and subscribing and commenting. All of those things are a great way to help support the channel too. So don't feel obligated, but I appreciate it if you consider it. I wanted to start off the video today with a little chat about homebrew. I recently did a poll on both my YouTube channel and my Twitter account, and between the two of them I actually got over 8,000 responses at the time of this recording, so pretty decent sample size. My question for the poll was essentially this. What content can you play with at your table? The options were core books only, core books plus setting specific stuff, anything on D&D Beyond is okay, next all of the above plus homebrew, and then the final option was other, most of which as far as I can tell was either core books plus homebrew or setting specific stuff is okay if we're playing in that setting or if it makes sense for our world, etc. For me, the two biggest takeaways from this poll were this. A good 80% of you, and I was surprised to learn this actually, can play with pretty much anything that's listed on D&D Beyond, regardless of whether it's official Wizards of the Coast material or not, apparently. And the majority of you add homebrew at your table. And you know what? I love that. It mirrors my own table as well, actually, and I personally think that bringing in third-party and homebrewed stuff adds a lot of potential fun to the game. Now, I do recognize that it also can potentially unbalance the game, but I guess for me, what it all boils down to is this one question. What is the main reason that people play D&D? What is the main reason that I play D&D? If the answer is to play a game whose balance is rigorously controlled so that everyone can compete with each other fairly, then sure, maybe allowing homebrew and third-party stuff isn't super ideal. Of course, you could definitely make the argument that Wizards of the Coast themselves aren't particularly great at balancing their own game, but that's an argument for another time. If, on the other hand, the answer to the question is simply to have fun, to tell a great story with my friends and have a good time doing it, then I think bringing in third-party content and homebrewing stuff yourself can potentially add a lot to the fun that we all have while playing, especially for those of us who are a little more experienced and have been playing the game for a while, right? Like I've said, I appreciate that some third-party and homebrewed stuff can be really unbalanced, and that in and of itself 
can potentially affect the amount of fun that you or some people at your table may be having. I think if you're going to use any of it, it really behooves the DM to lead a discussion in a session zero about what's going to be introduced and allowed at the table, maybe get input and feedback from everyone to make sure that, you know, any balancing or tweaking that might need to happen can be addressed, just to sort of make sure that there's not gonna be one player character at the table who just has a massive leg up against everybody else and then ends up really like outshining everybody else at the table because they're playing with something that's really overpowered, etc., etc. Anyway, there was a reason that I wanted to conduct this poll. As most of you know, I tend to only cover like official D&D content on this channel and try my best, though I sometimes fail, to stick to a fairly strict interpretation of the rules when I create characters. My theory for doing so is essentially this. I really want to reach as big an audience as possible with these videos and with my character builds, and for that to happen, I can't really bring in any third-party content into my creations because doing so would mean that a certain portion of my audience couldn't use the content that I was pulling from in order to create the character, and would therefore be less likely to watch the video and that would anger the gods of the algorithm, and my YouTube numbers would go down the toilet. And this actually seemed to be a little bit confirmed when I actually tried a third-party build a couple of years ago, and it performed fairly poorly compared to the other videos that I was releasing at the time. And yet, I continue to get a lot of requests to do third-party content. Most of these come in the form of requests to do something that either Matt Colville has created, a la the Ill Rigger or something like it, or more often, something that Matt Mercer and the other great people over at Critical Role have created, like especially the Blood Hunter. Usually when people ask me to do a build for one of these classes, I say something like, I try to stick to official content only, but if demand gets high enough, maybe I will. And I do, I move my arms like that when I, when I say that. Anyway, yes, demand for Blood Hunters in particular has continued to increase over the months and years. And I've been really jonesing to do another one. That video that I linked a minute ago was my first and only so far attempt at doing a Blood Hunter build. And it's been almost two years since I did it. Not only that, but Halloween is coming soon. It's less than a week away at the time of this video release. And this particular Blood Hunter that I have in mind has not only received a boatload of requests, but is one that is just perfect for a Halloween build. So yes, I've been looking for an excuse to dip into unofficial content for the build this week and survey says, go for it. So I'm gonna go for it. And I really hope that those poll numbers are true and that at least 80% of you could actually use this build if you wanted to. And maybe that the other 20% of you will watch the video anyway out of the kindness of your heart or out of sheer morbid curiosity. But even if you don't, it's not gonna stop me, because today we are doing episode 114, An American Werewolf in London, A Wild Amount Werewolf in Faerun. <laughs> How about just the werewolf? Huge thanks to my good friend Randall Hampton for the fantastic artwork that he created for this character concept. I love it. I love everything he does. He's amazing. As most of you know by now, if you'd be interested in following Randall to check out the other stuff that he does, or even potentially reaching out to him to see if you can commission him to create some art for you and or your party, I will as always put links in the video description on how to do so. Thanks, Randall. And guess what? We don't have a sponsor this week, which kind of stinks for my financial independence. <laughs> 
but is kind of nice for the amount of time that I had to take to prepare the build this week. So we're just going to jump right in to level one. Let me mention first up that I'm planning on building this character to be a burst damage dealer, but the truth is they're going to be a bit of a hybrid between sustained damage and burst. For this reason, they are going to be competitive in both burst or Nova damage and sustained DPR damage when compared to other builds of either type that I've done to date, but they're not going to be amazing in either. Very similar, I think, to like the Thunderball secret agent build that I did a few months ago, which was mostly an infiltrator, armorer, artificer. And I'm kind of liking this approach more and more these days as being able to do good sustained damage, but also having some fairly strong burst damage potential kind of lets you have your cake and eat it too in combat, yeah? So, at level 1, for our starting class, we are, yes, going Bloodhunter. If you can believe it, I'm actually starting out in the class that I said I was building around. I think that's two weeks in a row. Now, for those who don't know much about Bloodhunters, let me enlighten you. In a nutshell, you can kind of think of them like witchers or maybe like Van Helsing, maybe even a little bit of Grey Wardens if you're familiar with any of the fictional universes that those things come from. They're essentially monster hunters who, in order to be as effective as possible at hunting monsters, become slightly monstrous themselves. They draw a lot of their power from Hemocraft, which is like a blood magic, and they often harm themselves a little bit, drawing upon the magic in their blood to make themselves more powerful. As for our starting race, I was, admittedly as always, sorely tempted to start out with custom lineage here to get us a free feat at level 1, which would then let us start with an 18 in our most important ability score, but in the end I went with my second favorite option, which is to take half-elf as a race, for reasons I'm sure many of you can guess. Now. When you choose Half-Elf, you can actually select from a fairly long list of sub-races that might not necessarily be listed in the player's handbook, but you'll see them if you have access to other books or D&D Beyond. I don't know why, but for some reason, whenever I take Half-Elf and then talk about the sub-race, I get a lot of comments in the video saying, there's no such thing as a High Elf Half-Elf or a Drow Elf Half-Elf or a Wood Elf Half-Elf, and apparently they like to move their arms like this. What's with the arms today? Honestly, I don't think it matters a ton which subrace you take here. Our charisma score is not going to be very good, or I'd say go drow. For the spells that you get, you might want to do that anyway. If there's a cantrip you really want, go ahead and take high elf. But for me, I think I would go wood elf, half elf. Both because I feel like it fits the character theme a little bit better, being a little bit wild, a bit of a hunter like we're going to be, and because that extra five feet of move speed can definitely be nice. As for our ability scores, I assume as always that we're going the point by method and would recommend taking a 15 dexterity with a plus two that half elves get there, a 15 wisdom with one of our plus ones there, and a 15 constitution with our other plus one there, meaning yes, we'd be dumping intelligence, strength, and charisma. But that gives us some really nice starting ability scores in our most important abilities and our most important saving throws. Now, just in case you hadn't heard, Bloodhunters have been changed somewhat recently in that while their primary stats used to be strength or dexterity, and intelligence. They've now been altered so that you can use wisdom instead of intelligence for like all of your Bloodhunter abilities that use intelligence by default. That's a very generous change, which I greatly appreciate because this character is going to benefit a lot more from wisdom than they would intelligence. Thanks, Matt. 
As for our starting equipment, I would recommend taking the gold buy method as usual and would say pick up some scale mail, a shield, a rapier, and any other necessities you may have. I would plan on going like sword and board for the first few levels on this character here personally for the better armor class, and in that case yes we'd want a rapier so we could use our dexterity for our plus to hit and damage since it's a finesse weapon. But as a blood hunter at level 1 we get a couple of cool features. First up, Hunter's Bane. This tells us that we have advantage on survival checks to track fey, fiends, or undead, as well as on intelligence checks to recall information about them. Okay, nice little ribbon feature, very flavorful, very appropriate. And then we get Blood Maledict. This is the first feature that blood hunters get that uses our hemocraft, our blood magic. With Blood Maledict, you get to choose one blood curse for now from a long list that you can use once per short rest for now. Blood curses are kind of like spells. They let you do a pretty wide variety of fairly harmful and annoying things to your enemies. And even better, you can choose to amplify them to be even more powerful if you choose. But when you amplify your blood curse, you do take necrotic damage equal to your hemocraft die. This die is a d4 currently, but it does scale up as you take more levels in Blood Hunter. One potential problem with blood curses is that most of them require a bonus action to use. And we are going to have a very consistent and reliable use of our bonus action. So for me, I'd probably try and pick up a blood curse here that uses our reaction instead. And there's a couple of nice ones. My favorite is the blood curse of the Eyeless, which tells us that when a creature within 30 feet of us makes an attack, we can use our reaction to roll our Hemocraft die and subtract the number we roll from their attack roll. Best of all, we can wait to use it until after the roll, you know, before the DM declares if it's a hit or a miss, but if we know our armor class or our allies armor class, right, we can be pretty confident that the roll that we make is gonna be the difference between a hit or a miss. We can amplify this curse so that all of the creature's attacks on that turn have that same penalty, which can be a pretty nice little defensive feature later on when we're fighting heavy hitters with multiple attacks, and will usually be worth amplifying in that case to you know, take a little bit of damage ourselves, but probably save a whole lot of damage for us or one of our allies. Not a bad little support feature. At level two, we get a fighting style, and I kind of hate our options here. <laughs> As a werewolf, none of the options we're given are likely going to help us out all that much, at least not when we are in werewolf form. If it were me, I'd probably see if I could convince my DM to let me take the unarmed fighting style here instead of the list that's given us. I mean, if you're playing with a DM who's allowing blood hunters already, I would think that they'd likely be amenable to the idea. Or if not, maybe blind fighting or superior technique or something a little more useful. It kind of strikes me as odd that Maddie Mercer wouldn't have added the unarmed fighting style to the list of potential options here for our subclass when we get there, but we'll get there in a moment. Anyway, as is, I'm going to plan on just taking the dueling fighting style, which at least will give us plus two damage to our rapier attacks. And then we also get here the Crimson Rite feature, and this is our second Hemocraft or blood magic feature. It's my favorite. Crimson Rite tells us that 
As a bonus action, you can infuse a weapon you're holding with elemental energy. Doing so causes you to take your Hemocraft die in necrotic damage, but from that point on, until you finish a short or long rest, weapon attacks with that weapon are considered magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance, and will do your Hemocraft die in extra elemental damage, which I love with all of my heart. We can choose one from three different rites currently. The Rite of Flame, the Rite of the Frozen, or the Rite of the Storm, which do extra fire, cold, or lightning damage, respectively. Personally, I think I would go with Storm, since I always think lightning damage is super cool. And I think of the three, it might be the least oft resisted, but feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, and take something else for that matter, if it just fits your style, or character, or personality a little better. At level three, we get our Blood Hunter subclass, our Blood Hunter order. And as I'm sure most of you have guessed by now, yes, we are going with the order of the Lycan. And since this is the first time that I have used this subclass in any build, let's go ahead and read what, uh, well, Matt Mercer has written about the Lycan. The ancient curse of lycanthropy is feared by nearly all peoples and cultures, passed through blood and seeding a host with the savage strength and hunger for violence of a wicked beast. The Order of the Lycan is a proud group of bloodhunters who undergo the taming, the ceremonial infliction of lycanthropy by a senior member of the Order for those who do not already carry the curse before seeking this path. These hunters then use the magic of their blood to harness the power of the monster they harbor without losing themselves to it. Using intense will and secret blood magic rituals, members of the Order of the Lycan learn to control and unleash their hybrid forms for short periods of time. Enhanced physical prowess, unnatural resilience, and razor-sharp claws make these warriors a terrible foe to any evil that crosses their path. Yet, no training is perfect, and without care and complete focus, even the greatest of blood hunters can temporarily lose themselves to their own hunger. I really, really love this description. I love the idea of people willingly subjecting themselves to this curse, trying to master the beast within in order to take advantage of the benefits that it can grant them to better hunt down their enemies. So yes, when we first meet our champion, this is the path that they have chosen for themselves. I would say that it's either been our character's plan all along, or maybe more intriguingly, perhaps our character was inflicted with lycanthropy against their will at this point in the game, and obviously that's something that you'd want to work out with your DM beforehand, right? But in desperation then have sought out the order of the blood hunters in a bid to help them master themselves. Or, ooh, you know what might be really cool? Start off this character right at level one having already been inflicted with lycanthropy using the rules for lycanthropy in the monster manual. But then when they hit level three, they find a blood hunter teacher or maybe have mastered what that teacher's been trying to teach them so that from this point forward, your lycanthropy changes a little bit. Anyway, at level three, as an order of the Lycan, we get a couple of cool features. First of all, we get heightened sense, which gives us advantage on any perception checks that rely on sight or smell. And considering that perception is probably the most oft called for for skill check in the game and that the vast majority of them rely on sight or smell. This is actually a pretty great ribbon feature, some nice utility. But our favorite thing about having lycanthropy is the hybrid transformation feature. This tells us that once per short rest, for now, we can transform into a special lycanthropic form for an hour. Meaning that even though it's only once per short rest, with that duration, depending on your table, depending on
depending on your party, how close together your combat encounters tend to be, how often you get short rests. I think most of us will be able to have this active for most of our combat encounters, if not all. Now, while transformed, you get a slew of fantastic features. Feral Might gives us advantage on strength checks and saves. That would be extra nice if we were building a strength-based werewolf and wanted to grapple, and I can definitely see a build that takes advantage of that, maybe in my future. Feral Might also gives us a plus one damage to our melee damage rolls, which scales up surprisingly. Even if you're not a fan of Matt Mercer, you at least have to give him this. Unlike a lot of classes and even subclasses that Wizards of the Coast puts out, he actually does build some decent scaling into his stuff. Anyway, Resilient Hide gives us resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage from non-magical, non-silvered weapons, which is so perfect and thematic and really quite strong. We even also get a plus one to our armor class while not wearing heavy armor. So this is a really fantastic defensive buff. As I say a lot on this channel, most of the damage that we take comes in the form of bludgeoning, piercing, or slashing, and it's more often than not, not magical. How's that for a double negative? But then also, there's my favorite benefit, predatory strikes. And this tells us that we get to apply our Crimson Right damage to our unarmed strikes, which we can treat as a single weapon. Meaning, regardless of whether we're punching, kicking, elbowing, headbutting, etc., we can apply our extra Hemocraft die in lightning damage, for me anyway, to each unarmed strike, which is wonderful. We can also use Dexterity instead of Strength for those unarmed strikes, and they deal a 1d6 in either slashing or bludgeoning damage, as opposed to just the flat 1 damage that unarmed strikes typically do. That also scales up to a d8 when we hit level 11 in Blood Hunter. Having essentially a free hunter's mark of lightning on all of our unarmed strikes is kind of amazing and I love it. Not only that, but when we take the attack action and make an unarmed strike, we can make an additional unarmed strike as a bonus action, similar to monks. That said, there is one teeny tiny little drawback to our lycanthropy, and it's called bloodlust. See, if we start our turn with less than half of our hit points, we have to make a wisdom save. Now the DC is only eight, so it's not really high, but still. If we fail that wisdom saving throw, we kind of lose control of ourselves and have to take the attack action against the nearest creature, regardless of whether they are friend or foe. What's more, if we're concentrating on a spell or are unable to concentrate because we're raging or something, we automatically fail that save. So no concentration spells for the this character I'm thinking. Now, part of me really wanted to build my character in order to like defend against this bloodlust, right? Maybe taking the resilient wisdom feat early on or even start with a level in a class that has proficiency and wisdom saves. But you know what? Nah, I kind of love this feature. I think I would sort of hate to play an entire campaign as a werewolf and never fail this saving throw and thus inadvertently attack one of my companions. Not because I secretly want to kill all of my allies, but I just think it fits the character so well and could potentially lead to some really great conflict between the characters in your party and hopefully later resolution, which can make for really fantastic storytelling, right? So, I mean, we've got a 16 wisdom. That means we should succeed on that save 80% of the time. And we don't have to save until we're below half health anyway, so yeah. I say let it ride and look forward to some really cool story moments that hopefully don't result in a TPK for your party. <laughs> 
If nothing else, you can always cry out to your allies like, Stay away from me! As you transform, right? To really add to that, I hurt myself to hurt others. No one will ever understand me. Character. At level 4, we get our first ability score increase or feat, and yes, we're going with, as I'm sure many of you have probably predicted, Elven Accuracy. If you have a reliable way to get advantage on a character, it's really hard to argue with the power of Elven Accuracy, especially when you're fighting enemies with like middling and high armor class. With Elven Accuracy, as a reminder, as long as you are a half-elf or an elf and making attacks with either your dexterity, wisdom, intelligence, or charisma, if you have advantage on your attack instead of rolling 2d20s to see if you hit, you get to roll 3, basically. What's more, it's a half-feat meaning we can add one to, for us, our dexterity, putting us at a very respectable 18 right now. We'll talk about where we're getting our advantage in a few minutes. At level 5, our Hemocraft die scales up to a 1d6. That's great for our Crimson Right damage and bad for our health when we use our Crimson Right or amplify our Blood Curse, but it's only a little bit bad. Totally worth it. And of course, very importantly, we get extra attack here. So now we get three unarmed strikes per turn, two with our action and one with our bonus action, all of which get to add our dexterity modifier to the damage, as well as our crimson right damage. At level six, I think, for me, I would say that my character seems to not be getting their lycanthropy as well under control as they had hoped when they joined this order. Perhaps, I'm hoping, that we recently failed a save against Bloodlust because it would make for a really nice catalyst for a story moment here. In an attempt to master the beast within, we're going to turn away for a little while from Bloodhunter and seek instead to better hone our body and our mind through more traditional means, improving our martial technique and even training our mind through the study of the art of war and tactics in hopes that our dedication and focus might give us the discipline we need to better control ourselves. Whatever your reasons, yes, we are taking some fighter levels here. And as a fighter one, we get another fighting style, and I am a bit torn on this, admittedly. Part of me really wants to go superior technique, and I think that would be a great choice. Part of me just wants to go defense or interception or even blind fighting. But since I'm building this character for damage and I'm a slave to the spreadsheet, I suppose I'll go with unarmed fighting style here. If if my DM wouldn't allow that to be an option when I gained my lycanthropy, so that my unarmed strikes now can be a d8 of damage instead of a d6. It's not a huge buff, and we actually will get to a d8 on this character eventually, so it's a little bit redundant in that sense, but that's not gonna happen until very late game for us. Still, you know, it's only a minor bump, and we would have to give up using our shield in order to get that bump to a d8. So, the value here, definitely questionable. Feel free to go another route if you want, but for me, I mean, it kind of seems a little weird to be a werewolf and using a shield anyway, right? I'm way too savage for that. I want both of my hands to make attacks with, right? <sighs> Defense be damned. Also, as a fighter one, we get second wind, which tells us that once per short rest, we can use a bonus action to heal ourselves for a d10 plus our fighter level. And so, at level six, it's time for our first damage report, so let's discuss what combat looks like for us at the moment. It's pretty simple, really. When combat breaks out, I'm going to assume that we already have our Crimson Rite activated. There's kind of no reason that I can think of to not just activate it right after you're done resting, so make sure you do that. When combat breaks out, though, if you're not already transformed, 
which you very well may be since your transformation lasts for an hour, go ahead, take a bonus action to do so, and make a couple of attacks. After that, make three attacks per turn, all with a d8 for your unarmed strikes, plus four for your dexterity modifier, plus a d6 for your crimson right damage, for a total of 3d8, plus 3d6, plus 12, every turn. And yeah, you may notice something, this isn't really a burst damage build, yet. And that's kinda why I talked at the beginning about it being sort of hybrid. That is going to start changing fairly dramatically, very soon, but for now, yeah, we're basically a sustained damage dealing character, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. So against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average do 36 DPR, and against an enemy me with a 15 armor class, we would do 27 DPR on average. And you know what? That's not bad. Compared to other sustained DPR builds that I've done to date at this level, and check the video description to see those comparisons if you didn't know, that's kind of bottom half of tier 2 slash upper half of tier 3, and admittedly, if you compare them to other Nova builds that I've done to date, they'd be dead last. But like I said, we're not really a Nova build yet. Now, on top of the damage, of course, we have some really pretty strong survivability, with our resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, and our respectable 18 armor class, assuming no shield but half plate, thanks to the plus one bonus that we get while we're transformed. And if we did go with a shield and took a different fighting style, we'd be at a 20 AC, with resistance to most of the incoming damage. We even have a little bit of support and utility functionality too, so I like this werewolf. And they're about to get a lot stronger. At level 7, we would be a fighter too, and yes, that means we get action surge. So now we have a burst damage option, and getting a second action that we can use once per short rest to make two more attacks on an overround is awesome, especially when we get to add a d6 of lightning damage to every attack we make. At level 8, we would be a fighter 3, and as such, we get our martial archetype, our fighter subclass, and we are going to go with Battlemaster. And this is the result of all of our training and studying. I love, love, love Battlemaster for this build, so let's get into why. First up, as a Battlemaster, we get the Combat Superiority feature, which tells us that we get to learn three combat maneuvers selected from an extensive list that enhance our abilities or attacks in a number of ways. We get four superiority dice per short rest to fuel these maneuvers with. These superiority dice are D8s. Also, if a saving throw is required by our enemy for one of these maneuvers that we use, it's based on either our dexterity or strength modifier, our choice, and that's really nice. As for which maneuvers I would recommend, I have two favorites here. Most importantly, I want to take trip attack. This tells us that when we hit a creature with a weapon attack, and yes, unarmed strikes would qualify here, check your sage advice compendium if you need confirmation, we can expend a superiority die to try and knock them prone. We add the die to the damage of the attack, and if the creature is large or smaller, and fail their strength saving throw against it, then they're knocked prone. In case you need to be reminded, one benefit for us on having the enemy that we're attacking be prone is that we get advantage on attacks against them, so long as we're only five feet away, right? And I just love the idea of running up to an enemy, knocking them prone, and then just pouncing on them and <laughs> during our Nova round. It's totally Warwick style, super werewolfy and awesome. What's with all the League of Legends references lately? <laughs> have you guys seen Arcane yet? Holy crap, best show ever. Anyway, 
As for our other maneuvers, I think I would for sure grab Menacing Attack, especially on this build. It also lets us add our superiority die in damage when we hit with a weapon attack, but then it forces the creature to make a wisdom save or be frightened of us until our next turn. And this is also super on point for a rabid, frenzied werewolf, right? Striking fear into the heart of our enemies with our blood-curdling howls and savagery. As for the third option, I'm just gonna say PYF, pick your favorite. But I would probably focus on like a utility or support or defense option here, I think. Evasive footwork or maneuvering attack or bait and switch can be fun, something like that. But at level nine, our poor Lycan has found that their pursuit of being a battle master just hasn't given them the level of discipline or self-mastery that they had hoped it would. Perhaps, I'm hoping, maybe you've failed another save against your bloodlust, and as a result have decided to turn to not physical or even mental mastery necessarily, but the more spiritual. We're going to try meditation, learning to live in the moment, getting our chakras all aligned, opening that third eye, because yes, we are taking some monk levels now. Woohoo! My favorite. So as a monk one, we get... A couple of features that, unfortunately, we might not even make use of. <laughs> First up, we get unarmored defense, and this tells us that if we're not wearing armor or using a shield, our AC is 10 plus our dexterity modifier plus our wisdom modifier. Now, right now, we're sitting at an 18 dex and a 16 wisdom, which is not bad. That would give us a 17 AC plus one when we're transformed, right? And that is the same as if we had half plate with our dexterity bonus. That said, if you are using a shield still, you didn't take the unarmed fighting style, or if you've managed to pick up like some plus one half plate or something, then your AC is gonna be better off going armored still. So just keep that in mind. We also get the martial arts feature, which tells us that, again, if we're not wearing armor or using a shield or using non-monk weapons, and we're not since all of our attacks are unarmed strikes, then we can use dexterity instead of strength for our unarmed strikes and monk weapon attacks. That's redundant. We can use a d4 for our unarmed strikes, which is worse than we already have. And when we take the attack action to make an unarmed strike or a monk weapon attack, we can make an unarmed strike with our bonus action, <laughs> which is again redundant. So yeah, bit of a bummer. I kind of hate redundant features, but I still think going monk is gonna be worth it. So just hang tight. For now, let's go over our level nine damage report. The big changes since last check are that we have gained action surge and maneuvers for our Nova round. From here on, on our Nova round, we would want to make our first attack of the turn and use the trip attack maneuver to try and knock the enemy prone. Assuming that they fail their save, and I'm assuming best case scenario, as I always do, we pounce. From here on, all of our attacks that we make for the rest of this turn are going to be made with advantage. And since we have elven accuracy, that means super advantage. So after we trip them, we make our second attack, then, then action surge, giving us four total attacks with our actions. And then we make a bonus action, unarmed strike as well, for five total attacks during our Nova round, each doing a d8 plus a d6 for our crimson right, plus four for our dexterity. And if we really wanted to go crazy, and it's me, so of course I do, 
We could use our other three superiority dice on this round as well, applying menacing attack to each one of them, giving us an extra d8 of damage on four of our five attacks, and causing our target to be both prone and frightened of us until our next turn. Meaning, in case you need a reminder, that they have disadvantage on attacks and ability checks, and can't move closer to us, which, I mean, of course they would be frightened of us. We're a freaking werewolf who just knocked them prone and practically flayed them alive with our snarling savagery while they were screaming in terror. Delicious. But against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average here during our Nova round do 91 damage. And against an enemy with a 16 armor class, we would do on average 88. And that puts us near the bottom of tier two for damage compared to other Nova builds at this level. And considering how respectable our sustained DPR still is, it's kind of bottom of tier three compared to other sustained DPR builds. I feel like we're in a really great hybrid-y place. At level 10, we would be a monk too, and we get unarmored movement. This is another feature you may or may not be using, but if you have decided to just doff that armor and go naked, as any self-respecting werewolf would, you know, maybe some like raggedy pants, I guess. Then we get an extra 10 feet of move speed. And since we already have an extra five from Wood Elf, that means we have 45 feet of move speed right now, which is kind of stellar. But then of course we get the real reason that we dipped into Monk in the first place, key. We get one key point per monk level, so we've got two for now. They reset on a short rest, and for us, they can be used for three different things. Patient defense and step of the wind let us take the dodge or dash action, respectfully, with a bonus action and a key point. And we're not super interested in those things for the most part, because we're here for flurry of blows. Now we're talking, because Flurry of Blows tells us that if we take the attack action, we can spend a key point to make not one, but two unarmed strikes as a bonus action, thus giving us six attacks on our Nova round, and that is a beautiful thing. As an aside, I will mention here that my original plan with this character was to go for a sustained damage build and not take fighter levels, but instead take more monk levels so that we could get more key points among other things and then assume that we're able to use flurry of blows for at least one entire combat encounter. I still think that's a pretty viable path to take with this build. And if you wanted to, would encourage you to just go ahead, skip those fighter levels and grab maybe four to six monk levels instead, I think. But the more I thought about it, the more I really like the idea of knocking an enemy prone and just pouncing on them for a big frenzied rabid burst. I did though still want to at least dip Monk so that we could get yet another attack a couple of times per short rest to make things even more frenzied. But at level 11, now that we've got our flurry of blows, I think for me, for this build, I would leave Monk behind. Again, if you wanted to keep going, I wouldn't blame you. More key points, a subclass, which should probably be Mercy, I think. Not to mention some cool and fun utility, stunning strike, etc, etc. But no, I think we benefit more personally, mechanically, by going back to Bloodhunter here. So it turns out that our hero has become disillusioned yet again by their attempt to master lycanthropy via meditation and spiritual pursuits, and have decided to at last acquiesce to their fellow bloodhunter lichens, and have decided that they just need to trust those who have gone before, and maybe learn a little bit to embrace the beast within instead of try to master or control it. So. As a Bloodhunter 6 here, we would get Brand of Castigation. This tells us that once per short rest, when you damage a creature with your Crimson Rite infused unarmed strikes, you can brand them, and from then on, you always know the direction to them, and 
Each time they deal damage to you or another creature within five feet of you, they take your Hemocraft modifier in damage, which again for us is wisdom, so three. Some nice potential utility and or bonus damage on one baddie. So make sure that you stay close to the enemy that you've branded, right? We also do get a Blood Maledict improvement here. We can use our Blood Curse twice per short rest now, and we get to pick up an additional Blood Curse. Again, lots of good and fun ones to use, but nothing I'd plan on using during our Nova round. So yeah, Bloated Agony is disgusting and great to use on enemies who make more than one attack per turn, dealing damage to them if they do so. Binding is actually a nice control option, keeping an enemy from moving or taking reactions. Blood Curse of Exposure lets you remove a creature's resistance or even, if amplified, turn their immunity to a damage type into just resistance. And that might be, as far as I know, the only way in 5e to do that, to take immunity down to resistance. Of course, Technically, Blood Hunters aren't part of 5e, so <laughs> so I guess there's still no official way to do this that I know of anyway. I think I would probably take Fallen Puppet here, which lets you cause a creature within 30 feet of you who drops to zero hit points, and it can even be an ally here, a hard-hitting ally. You cause that creature with your reaction to make a weapon attack against an enemy that's within their attack range, and it's super macabre and I love it. At level 12, we would be a Bloodhunter 7, and we get a second Crimson Rite option. And that's potentially nice. I mean, if we run into an enemy with lightning resistance, say, or immunity for that matter, we could now try fire or cold damage instead for our Crimson Rite. Or maybe we're just sick of lightning and we want to mix it up once in a while. Yes, for fun. So yeah, pick your favorite between Rite of the Flame or Rite of the Frozen here. And then we also get Stalker's Prowess as an Order of the Lycan Bloodhunter, which is a fairly impressive feature. It gives us 10 more feet of move speed, first of all. So for those of us who are unarmored and unshielded, that means we have 55 feet of move speed now, which is... Holy cow, we're moving almost as fast as any other teammate who dashes. And I mean, we could even dash as a bonus action and a key point, thanks to Step of the Wind, for 110 feet on a round if we wanted, if we used our action to dash as well. And action surge, woo, 220. Anyway, we can also add 10 feet to our long jump and three feet to our standing high jump. Okay, even better. When we're transformed, our unarmed strikes now get a plus one to hit, in addition to the plus one to damage they were already getting. Very nice. But here's what's weird. We're also told that now, if we have a Crimson Rite applied to our unarmed strikes while we're transformed, that our unarmed strikes are considered magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance. I kind of thought they already were, since we were told that our Crimson Rite did that right when we got the Crimson Rite feature, but apparently I was wrong, and it only applies to weapons. That feels a little silly to me. Anyway, definitely discuss this with your DM right at the beginning, like in a session zero. And if up until this point, your unarmed strikes were not considered magical for the purpose of overcoming resistance, then you might want to go Bloodhunter 7 before you start doing any multi-classing. So figure that out early. At level 13, we would be a Bloodhunter 8 and we get another ability score increase or feat, which means we can raise our dexterity and cap it at 20 finally. All that multi-classing really slowed us down, but I'm happy to have finally reached our cap, which will do nice things for both our damage and our armor class if we're unarmored. Not to mention our maneuver saving throws, our initiative of course, dexterity saves, stealth checks, etc, etc. For our level 13 damage report then, the changes to our damage since last check are as follows. An extra plus one to hit, 
an extra attack via flurry of blows and a capped dexterity score for another plus one to hit and damage. And we are definitely living our best werewolf lives at the moment. So against an enemy with a 10 armor class, we would on average during our Nova round do 111 damage. And against an enemy with a 17 armor class, it would be only a little bit less, 110. Now, we have slipped a little bit compared to other Nova builds at this level. We've scaled, but not a ton. So we're kind of middle of tier three by comparison. But again, we've got respectable sustained damage per round, and we bring some nice utility and or control options, little bit of support even, and we're very, very hard to kill to boot. What's truly great is that thanks to our fantastic plus 11 to hit and elven accuracy, and thanks to the fact that we're not using Great Weapon Master or Sharpshooter that give us a minus five to hit, the curve of our damage is so dang flat. As the enemy armor class goes up, our damage barely goes down. And in fact, the higher the enemy armor class, the more favorably this build compares to other Nova builds, generally speaking. Maybe most importantly, you can do your Nova round at least once per short rest. And in fact, you can do almost this level of damage twice per short rest if you only use two of your superiority dice instead of all four, right? And that is a lot more frequently than the vast majority of burst damage builds that I've created. And that really has a ton of value here that we should not underestimate. It doesn't show up in the spreadsheet, but it's important to keep in mind. Hold your head high, Wolfie. At level 14, we would be a Bloodhunter 9, and we get Grim Psychometry. This tells us that when we make a history check to recall info about the sinister or tragic history of an object or location, we have advantage on that check. Ooh. <laughs> that is some seriously niche stuff there. Did I say Matt Mercer knew how to scale his homebrew? <laughs> Just kidding. It's okay to get some utility ribbon features in there once in a while. As a monk fan, I know this pain well. So DMs, please, oh please, give your Bloodhunter players a chance to use this feature once in a while. Thank you. At level 15, we would be a Bloodhunter 10 and we get Dark Augmentation. This tells us that our speed increases by another five feet. So yeah, that's potentially 60 feet of move speed now. I love that so much. We also have a bonus to our strength, dexterity, and constitution saving throws equal to our Hemocraft or Wisdom modifier, which is kind of like Aura of Protection Light. That's a pretty nice defensive buff for reals. Don't forget, we also do get a third blood curse option here. So go ahead and pick your favorite on that. At level 16, we would be a Blood Hunter 11 and our Hemocraft die goes up to a D8 now. It's a little bump to our damage and to the damage that we take, of course, from using our Hemocraft magic, among other things. Totally worth it. Also, our unarmed strikes go up to a D8. So if you didn't take unarmed fighting or even if you did, but want to equip a shield now and don't mind giving up some monk features for the AC bump, we can make unarmed strikes with a D8 now, regardless of whether we took that fighting style or not. More importantly, our unarmed strikes get a plus two to hit and to damage, thanks to feral might and improved predatory strikes. We also get the advanced transformation feature, which tells us that we can finally use our transformation twice per short rest. And again, with it lasting for an hour, I have to believe that the vast majority of us will be able to be transformed for pretty much every combat encounter if we weren't already. What's more, at the start of our turn, if we have between one and half of our hit points, we heal hit points equal to one plus our constitution modifier, so four. Now, it's not a ton of healing, but hey, 
free healing every round when you're gonna most need it because you're getting kind of low, I'll take it. And it might be just enough to get us over our bloodlust threshold, right? But finally for us at level 17, I think for me for this build, I'm actually gonna finish off at Fighter 4. Fighter 4 or Bloodhunter 12, both are gonna give us the same thing, an ability score increase or feat. But assuming that we did take the unarmed fighting style, which is totally redundant now, I would just as soon go back to Fighter 4 because ever since Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, we're allowed to switch out a fighting style when we gain a level in Fighter that would allow us to get an ability score increase or feat, right? So now we could swap unarmed fighting for something else. And yeah, I'm gonna say we take superior technique to gain one more superiority die per short rest to use on our maneuvers during our Nova round. It is only a D6 for some odd reason, but we also get to learn an additional maneuver too. So that's nice. Grab another utility or support feature, get yourself something nice. On the other hand, if I knew I were going to be playing this character until level 20. I think I would stick with Bloodhunter here because that would get us, among other things, to the Lycan's 15th level feature, Brand of the Voracious, which is quite good. But assuming we went Fighter 4 here, swap out that fighting style for superior technique, pick your favorite on the new maneuver that you learn, and as for the ability score increase or feat that we get here, I think I'm gonna bump Wisdom and take that to an 18. That's great for our armor class if we're unarmored, plus a bunch of other stuff that we're trying to do as a Bloodhunter. Not to mention, of course, our Wisdom saving throws. So for our final damage report here at level 17, the only things that have changed since last check are another plus one to hit and damage for our unarmed strikes, our Hemocraft die going from a D6 to a D8, and another superiority die to potentially use during our Nova round if we wanted. Fairly small damage increases, to be honest, though some of those are going to apply to our sustained damage per round as well, of course, and we have gained a lot of nice defensive buffs, as well as some additional utility increases. But against an enemy with a 10 armor class here, on our Nova round, we would on average do 129 damage, and against an enemy with an 18 armor class, it would be practically the same, 128. And yeah, again, the flatness of that curve as the enemy AC increases is just a thing of beauty. But also, again, our damage hasn't really seen the big increase increases as we've leveled that a lot of other burst damage builds get, putting us here kind of in the bottom of tier 3 compared to other Nova builds at this level. But like I've said, we can burst more frequently than all of them with maybe the exception of the Whippoorwill. And the survivability of this build is pretty unrivaled by comparison. We also do decent sustained DPR, and we bring some nice other toys to the party to boot. So let's go over final thoughts. The tier score for this character, if you take all of the damage that they do at each armor class that we reported on at each of the damage reports and just average it all together, is an 83, which puts them right in the middle of tier 3 for Nova damage builds, a little bit ahead of the Thunderball Secret Agent, which, as I mentioned, is the last attempt that I made to do like a hybrid burst sustained damage character, and then just below the Shadow Sorcerer. So yeah, like I said, not amazing, but really not bad, especially when you consider, like I've said, all the additional perks that you're gonna be bringing with you with this character. I think the biggest like unsung hero here is the frequency with which we can burst. I mean, a lot of my Nova builds are characters that like use their 
biggest spell or spells during their Nova round, or other sort of really limited resources. And it means that they can really only do that level of Nova damage, not just once per short rest, but really once per long rest. The fact that at least by the end of this build, the character can really pretty much go full Nova twice per short rest is really fantastic. Especially if you play at a table where you fairly frequently get more than one combat encounter between short rests. And yeah, speaking of, if you're going to be playing this character in-game, I think your number one priority, aside maybe from getting the Insignia of Claws magic item, would be to talk to my other party members and my DM about the importance for me to get regular short rests. Everything that we do depends on short rests. Our transformation, our key points, our superiority dice, you're as dependent on short rests as warlocks, if not more so. So hopefully everyone at your table will do what they can to let that happen frequently. But yeah, the other really marquee feature that this character brings, their survivability. As a d10 hit die character, who has resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage, I'd say you're about as hard to kill as your typical raging barbarian. And in fact, maybe even tougher, since you likely have a better armor class than the barbarian would, and you're not giving advantage to your enemies on their attacks against you because you're not using reckless attack like they are, right? On top of that, you've got a ton of move speed, some nice utility, a little bit of support via blood curses, maneuvers, things like that. This is really one pretty well-rounded werewolf. But of course, above all, yeah, the best part about this build is that you get to be a freaking werewolf. So I hope on the next full moon that you get to let your inner beast out and give this character a try, because that is the build for the week, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Happy Halloween, everybody. I hope you know how much I love you. You are the best, so thanks for all that you do. I hope you'll check out the other content in the channel if you're not in the habit of doing so, but above all, I hope that you stay safe and that you're good and kind and happy, and that I see you again really, really soon. So, until then, take care. It's close to midnight Something evil's lurking in the dark Under the moonlight You see a sight that almost stops your heart You try to scream But terror takes the sound before you make it you start to freeze As horror looks you right between the eyes You're paralyzed Cause this is Thriller Thriller night And no one's gonna save you from the beast about to strike <laughs> I actually just bought tickets um, for my wife's birthday I'm taking her to one, the Michael Jackson show in Vegas um, she's very excited. She's a much bigger MJ fan than I, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> Don't tell her. It's a surprise. Very flavorful. Very appropriate. <laughs> very appropriate. Have you ever been to Breckenridge? If not, you're missing out. It's gorgeous. That's better. Can you hear the dog? It's a loud dog.
Well, don't even say that. <clears throat> Ooh. Ooh. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Ooh. Don't even say that. So this is a really fantastic defensive debuff. <laughs> oh, a spider. Hi, little spidey. Please eat some mosquitoes. Thank you. <laughs>